0: There and welcome to our show, the shit no one tells you about writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and CC Lira from PS Literary Agency.
2: Hi, everyone. It's CC. Question: What's the biggest difference between a book and a movie? If you listen to the podcast, you already know the answer. It's not that movies have things like special effects or soundtracks or even actors at their disposal. It's that books allow us to be inside someone's head to experience their inner lives, which is why the ability to write a character's interiority is so important. With that in mind, I've developed a webinar called Writing Interiority, Revealing Your Character's Inner Life. Join me on August 18th via Zoom to learn all about the foundation and functions of interiority, including how to leverage interiority into plot points. We'll cover techniques on how to effectively convey a character's inner life in a way that keeps the reader turning the pages of the story with lots of examples from some amazing books. And of course, we'll have time for a Q&A. Writers of all genres are invited to attend, as knowing how to write interiority is a superpower f- useful for all storytellers. For information on how to register, please head over to my Instagram or Twitter page, click on the link in my bio, and follow the instructions. And don't worry, if you're busy on August 18th, register anyway because the class will be recorded and a recording will be sent to everyone 24 hours later. I hope to see you there.
0: Today's guest is the internationally best-selling author of novels including Lost Immunity, The Last High, and We All Fall Down. He practices emergency medicine in Vancouver, British Columbia. It's my pleasure to welcome Daniel Carla. Daniel, welcome to the show.
3: It's great to be on. Thanks, Bianca.
0: Yeah. And then today we have a special guest. So we decided to have an emerging writer joining us on the show to interview Daniel because we thought that it would be wonderful to have two people in the medical profession talking about medical writing. So our guest interviewer is an aspiring writer originally from Vancouver who now lives in Toronto where she's worked at a trauma hospital as an orthopedic technologist for over 15 years. It's my pleasure to welcome Kira Mahoney. Kira, welcome to the show.
4: Hi, Bianca. Thank you. So excited to be here.
0: And just to tell you, you are not an aspiring writer, Kira. You (laughs) are a writer, perhaps an emerging writer, but definitely a writer nonetheless. Okay, so I'm now handing it over to Kira, who's going to be interviewing Daniel. Amazing. Thank you so much. Dr. Kala, it's so nice to get to
4: talk to you. I am a huge fan, so I'm fangirling a little bit here. Congratulations on your latest novel, The Darkness in the Light. I absolutely adored it. And I love the title. It's so poignant, especially after reading it. I thought it was amazing. So in The Darkness and the Light, the topic of suicide is addressed. And in many of your novels, but also in The Last High, it's centered around the opioid crisis. And I want to know, why is it important for you to tackle these major health concerns in your books?
3: Well, I mean, you know, that's a great question, Kieran. I think you as a writer who has a medical background will understand. I mean, the one thing we have to offer sometimes is kind of a peek behind the curtains of important medical issues, and we get a chance to see them in a way the public doesn't. And there's so many hot-button, devastating medical themes to talk about these days. And I find, you know, I don't write nonfiction, and I find using these novels as a vehicle sometimes to discuss some very heavy issues, but do it in a hopefully entertaining way in a compelling way, is a great way to to be able to raise some of these topics without spoon-feeding people or lecturing to people.
4: Yeah, I totally agree. Absolutely. Yeah, it's very true. So as we're talking about, you work in emergency medicine, which is very busy at the best of times. And we all know it's been a crazy couple of years during the pandemic working in the front lines. So I'm really curious when you find time to write and what your writing routine is actually like.
3: Yeah, you know, I don't have a a writing routine at all. I write when I have something to write, even when I don't have time. And you know, one of the things I always tell when I speak at schools or whatever, and where anybody asks me about becoming a writer, I I don't buy the time as an excuse thing. People say, oh, where do you find the time? How do you do it? And the truth is, I'm an incredibly lazy person at times. I'm fortunate enough to work in emergency, which I'm not sure about your hours, Kira, but I do shift work and I don't do full-time anymore, so I get a lot of weekdays off. I always have these great banker's hours often to to do my writing. But I think if you're passionate about writing and you want to write, you make the time. And I, I think there are a few people just are overwhelmed with family and life and and other things but most of us can find time for our hobbies most of us can find time for ourselves my challenge is never finding the time it's finding the ideas and getting that momentum and uh, so and i and and i have to say i, I you know my kids are grown now i have as I said, I'm not working full time, so I have the luxury of, of having more time than than some people, for sure.
4: Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think that finding the time to write, if you want to do it, is possible in any schedule, it's true. So I think it's important when writing any kind of medical fiction to be medically accurate with what's being written. But when lots of medical terms and conversation is sometimes used, the reader may get a little bit lost in it. How do you balance this so well in your writing?
3: Thank you. I think that's a learned skill. I think I, I'm more efficient at it now, having you know written my 13th book, um, than I was at the beginning. You're right. It is a fine balance. I, I feel an absolute commitment to be medically accurate. And if I'm making up medical stuff or new conditions, I'm, I'm clear about that at some point that I am but but I try to be as authentic in all the writing I try to write kind of very realistic fiction when I you know as much as possible but you're right you can so easily tip over I remember uh, reading a Tom Clancy book when I was a kid you know it was all about military and submarines and it was like at one point and I think he's a great author but at one point it was like reading of the technical specifications <laughs> of a submarine manual right there was just page and I never I Readers don't, most readers don't have any interest in that. I think it's it's important to catch, that you don't need the most specific details. You need to capture the overarching important concepts and points and, and touch on those. And I think, yeah, and I think in a, a good editor and a few passes helps when you're expanding too much and you've, you're including way too much detail. And sometimes you need more explanation. I find my editors are great for that. They'll say, yeah, you need a bit more explanation about this medical term or Yeah, you need a bit less on this scene. So I think it's sometimes a trial and error kind of process.
4: I absolutely, totally agree. For me, it's uh, my writing group sometimes will be like, what does all of this mean? I don't understand. And speaking of in that sort of vein, I often get a lot of questions about medical terms and situations from my fellow writers who don't have a medical background and are trying to include something in the scene. And I think a lot of people don't have access to somebody who's in the medical field to ask these things. Do you have any advice of where those writers can access this type of information if they, if they want it?
3: You know, I think for the most part, you can always find the information somewhere on the Internet. But I think mean, you need to ask yourself if, if it's that hard to find, if it's that specific, you really need to be adding those kind of details. This kind of happens all the time because I write a lot of novels where a detective is one of the co-protagonists or main characters or there's a lawyer or somebody that I, an area I know nothing about. And so I, I will turn to friends if I can. And In fact, the last high I had, I happened to know an undercover cop who worked in the, you know, the undercover drug trade world in Vancouver so he just opened my eyes that was fantastic and in my latest book I I, I one of the VPD superintendents helped me with some of the technical police stuff readers know a lot we all know a lot from reading fiction watching crime shows and stuff I think you just have to be as authentic as you can be and if you don't for me if I don't know the details about somehow exactly something will happen I just I just don't include them I mean we make leaps all the time when we're reading and when we're writing. And so I I think, I think people sometimes get too hung up on trying to sound too authentic. And and then it comes off as artificial and worse, boring. So yeah, I mean, so it's not, I'm not trying to contradict what I said (laughs) earlier about accuracy. I think that's important. But I think there's times when you can minimize detail and times when it's your strength that you can maximize detail. And if you do it well, the reader won't be overly aware of, you know, where, (laughs) where your gaps are.
4: Yeah, right. That's very good advice on that, for sure. I think when you're so close to it, and you're writing it, you often get caught up in these, in these things as well.
0: So something that I'd like to ask in terms of emerging writers really struggle when it comes to writing more than two characters within a scene. If you have multiple characters in a scene and they're all speaking at the same time and it's a high tense, high drama situation, it's kind of difficult to move between all of these characters with the reader knowing who the heck's saying what, who's in charge, who's this person, who's that person. How do you approach writing those kinds of scenes? Because in a medical capacity, it's always a team of people. It's never just one random dude.
3: That's a great question. I still, I'm still just emerging writers. I mean, I can't speak for all writers, but that's one of the most difficult things to do. In in fact, in general, one of of my great weaknesses as a writer is dialogue tags. I think one of my strengths is writing dialogue, but the tags and the the descriptors that have to be attached to it is often where I, I stumble. I think it's best to minimize. If you get a cadence of people talking, certainly two people talking, you can minimize, as you know, the dialogue tags. Readers can easily follow who's saying to what. And if you give little quirks, you know, if one of your characters is British, if one of your characters uses a lot of slang, if one of the, there's ways of identifying a, a character through the dialogue without adding any tags. But, so, but then my editors have taught me over the years, otherwise it's easier just to say so-and-so says. And there's such a, you don't want to repeat says or said, you want to find some clever prose to, but that often, especially in an action scene, slows it down. So it's fine to just, if you have five people talking, I mean, at some point, you can't do that forever. You need to give them some kind of visual tick, some kind of, you know, you need to find another way of indicating that they're talking. But you don't need to do that a lot. You can can do that sparingly and just use a lot of says and said. And if the dialogue's good enough and the action's good enough, no one's going to be hung up on the fact that you're doing it in a very simplistic way.
0: Yeah, and for our listeners, keep in mind that action beats and dialogue tags are two different things. So, a dialogue tag is he said. If you've got a scene with a lot of characters and a lot of movement, you can replace the he saids with that action beat. So, as opposed to past the forceps, he said, it could be past the forceps. Dr. So-and-so snapped his fingers, reaching out, mopping his brow as he leaned over, whatever. Then what we've got as readers is something to imagine. We can see I know nothing about anything medical right here, but I know something about action beats. Okay, Kira, back to you. Thank you. That was awesome, Bianca. Uh,
4: (laughs) So from what I have read, the idea for your first medical thriller came to you in 2003 during SARS, and you wrote Pandemic. Is this the first time in your life you wanted to write and sort of like take us through your publishing process a little bit and your agent and that sort of thing?
3: I tell people that as a child I always wanted to tell stories and write and I used to love creative writing in grade school and elementary school and then I say that I wrote a, a postcard when I was in grade 10 that was well received and I went into retirement for 15 years but the truth is medicine is my family profession and you can't swing a dead cat at my family reunions without hitting five doctors right we all and so Again, my parents were doctors, and and I kind of always expected I'd go the science route. And so I focused on, on that at later high school and undergrad and then went through medicine. But always in the back of my mind, I wanted to get back to writing. And I did dabble kind of at short stories and stuff. But after my first daughter was born in the late 97, and I just started my career as an eMERGE doc, i had the opportunity to take a night school course in screenwriting and i cajoled a couple friends to join me and uh i was just hooked the instructor was great he was so supportive he became a friend so we wrote a script for a screenplay for a black comedy out of a that started as a class exercise and our instructor passed it on to a canadian producer at the time who was kind of on a roll and we got a call three days later saying they wanted to make this movie and i was like you know i don't know what all these aspiring writers are talking about this is easy you write something and three days later you have and of course the script went nowhere it got lost in development hell and then i started writing a novel because i was so hooked and i went through everything that every writer does i struggled to find an agent i wrote two manuscripts before the third one was accepted by like well, i found an agent after the second one but it was after the third one that we found a publisher and I was lucky enough as you said it was it was a two book deal and it included pandemic and it was a new york publisher and the timing was right and i you know i got off to an incredibly lucky start but it took four or five years for me to grind through and finally land a publisher and fortunately i just didn't know i, I, I didn't listen to bianca's podcast back then i didn't i didn't read enough i, I, I if i had known how hard it was going to be and if i'd known how many ups and downs there continue to be in the writing world, I might never have started because it, it can be incredibly discouraging. So ignorance was a bit of bliss, but every writer goes through this. Every one of you out there who is writing, there are ups and downs that are one step forwards, two steps back. It's for the love of writing and for being able to storytell that I do this. I now more and more hate the kind of time around that when a novel is published and if expectations aren't met and all the you know self-promotion, all that stuff. It's it's my least favorite part of the writing process now,
4: well, it's sort of a weird thing to say, but it's nice to hear that you've struggled as well <laughs> because I feel like it is hard- it is hard it's it's definitely hard, and you have to love it. You definitely have to love it to keep going that's that's where I'm at with my writing anyway. <laughs>
0: I just want to Mm -hmm. say that I'm super glad then that you didn't listen to the podcast, if that was likely to put you off writing. Sometimes knowledge is power, sometimes it can be completely overwhelming, and that's never where we want our emerging writers to be, definitely. Kira? Probably, yes. So I guess back into some more
4: writing detail, in The Darkness and the Light, there are two points of view. There's a psychiatrist and a social worker. And I just was curious how and why you decided on using two points of view when you were writing this story.
3: Well, because, as you know, from the story, there's a fairly major twist in the story. And I had never seen a first person story told with the kind of twist that I put in. I mean, it's very specific to the fact that it is a first-person narrative. And um, so I always knew there were gonna be two parts, uh, the first part narrator and the second part narrator. Then I decided I want two incredibly distinctive voices. So the first character is a psychiatrist who loses one patient to presumed suicide and another goes missing. And he's, you know, as you know, these patients are in a very remote, the most Northern town really in the world outside of Russia in Alaska, an incredible town, but he feels incredibly guilty and partly responsible for what happened to them. And he goes up, obviously, to investigate further. But I really wanted a character because, as you said, the story deals with depression and suicide. And I wanted a psychiatrist who is suffering depression himself would actually literally stood on the precipice and, you know, looked over the bridge as it was so he could truly be empathetic and understand what his, his patients are going through and what it's like to suffer depression. And so... Uh, He's not as morbid a character as I'm making him sound. I, I think he has a good sense of humor. He has a loving family, a good connection with his daughter, and, and he's, a, he's a good doctor and cares a lot about his patients. But then I wanted a contrasting voice and literally as contrasting, so I chose a, a female point of view, a social worker who's perpetually optimistic or at least gives the appearance in the outside world that she's perpetually optimistic. She has her own demons as well. But I wanted to I wanted there to be this sharp contrast in voice when... One narrator takes over from the other that you immediately know this is a different story because it really is a different story. All the assumptions from the first part of the story, many of them are contradicted in the second part of the story. And that was the whole idea to have two contrasting stories and two contrasting voices tell it.
4: Yeah, it worked so well. I loved it. It was great. And so interesting to have a doctor who is suffering from depression and a psychiatrist as well, because I think sometimes people don't realize that doctors aren't immune to these things, so or healthcare workers in general. So that was that was great. So along with medical thrillers, you've also written historical fiction. What drew you into writing that genre?
3: Yeah, I, I completely stumbled into that genre. I was being interviewed. It was probably the biggest intro I'd ever had for um, Reader's Digest after my first novel came out. And the woman is lovely and an excellent interviewer, and she just happened to mention that, you know, her parents got married in Shanghai. I said Shanghai, and she said, "Yeah, you hadn't heard about the Shanghai Jews." And it turns out, and she was very Jewish, and and you know, and did not fit the mold of somebody I would have expected to have grown up or had her parents grow up in Shanghai. And she started telling me the story about these thirty thousand German Jews who had escaped just before World War One, right after Kristallnacht, to Shanghai and lived. In. And then I started to to read about this incredible city that Shanghai was. It was a microcosm of a world at war with every possible faction imaginable, and it was controlled by multiple different nationalities, none of them Chinese. And it was they called it the Paris of Asia, but it was more like the Las Vegas of Asia at the time, a crazy city. And I just fell in love with the city and the concept, and then I started to try to read more about it, and all I could find was some sort of self-published memoirs, and there was no big novels, there was no big non-fiction, and I said, I have to create a story about this. I had never planned to write historical fiction. I'd never certainly had any... I haven't had any formal training in any form of writing, but particularly in writing historical fiction. But it just led to this passion project that, that that became a trilogy of novels about this this fictional Jewish doctor who's very secular, who escapes with his daughter to Shanghai and falls in love with a Eurasian nurse who lives there, who's half American and half Chinese, and and they have this incredible adventure. And uh, it's probably the the effort I'm most proud of. I mean, it was the hardest work, the most research but I really am proud of the story. Proud of the fact that I, I told, I've had a couple survivors, I don't even know if they're still alive, but from that period, um, a couple of them tell me that they read it. And one of them who's very frail told me that it, it took her back to her youth for a few happy uh, days. And that meant the world to me because I, I really felt debt to get the historical details right.
4: Wow, that's incredible.
3: Very cool. But can I just say one thing, Bianca before, because on, on the point that you made, I think it's wonderful i didn't mean to to minimize having kind of writers groups and podcasts like these to support emerging writers i think emerging writers need a ton of encouragement as well and so i just meant that i i was sort of tongue-in-cheek about my own ignorance when i was in this stage it is overwhelming it's hard we all struggle there's no i don't care who the most successful writer you read has had their work rejected before who's has nobody Even if they look like overnight sensations, they're not. And so um, it's great to have other people talking about this, and, and, and it's great to have support of fellow writers.
0: Oh, no, thank you. I definitely didn't take it in the wrong way at all. I just, I know that it can be very overwhelming when you try and learn anything. It's like trying to learn to play golf. If someone comes in and they're telling you absolutely everything all at once, you're like, oh, shit, I'm not going to be able to learn this game. But like, if they just teach you how to hold, I call it a bat. If they just teach you how to hold the bat first time, then you're like, okay, I can swing the bat. But yeah, it, it, it can be overwhelming and we definitely don't want it to be that. But thanks to people like uh, Daniel and Kira for coming onto the show for helping helping. helping demystify so much of this for us for all of you and we're going to be putting the darkness in the light on our bookshop.org affiliate page go there buy it you'll support an independent bookstore and the podcast at the same time
5: Welcome, welcome, welcome. You have Carly here to tell you about our upcoming The Shit No One Tells You About Writing Virtual Retreat. It is on September 24th and 25th, and we are so excited to bring this back to you guys again. We did it in January. We had an absolute blast and got such amazing feedback that we were so excited to be able to put together another amazing weekend. We have 18 hours of jam-packed content. We have 13 speakers. It's such an amazing, inspiring, and just community-building event um, filled with so many learning opportunities. opportunities from authors, editors, and various speakers around the industry. We can't wait to see you guys there. Check out more on our website and we will see you soon. My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. Other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of a one hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal.
0: Today's guest is an author and certified Story Grid editor. She's published fiction for both women and children and is currently working on her first thriller. As a bona fide story nerd, her passion for the craft of storytelling led her to become a certified Story grid editor in 2017. Her nonfiction credits include a Story Grid guide to Bram Stoker's Dracula and regular articles for the Fundamental Fridays column on Sean Coyne's Story Grid website. She also co hosts the podcast Story Nerd, which is what we're specifically going to be discussing in today's episode. It's my pleasure to welcome Valerie Francis. Valerie,
6: welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Bianca.
0: It's so lovely having you and for our listeners who were at our very first retreat back in January Valerie was one of our speakers there so it's wonderful to have you back and to be discussing story with you again Valerie so since we last spoke you've been quite busy why don't you tell us about story nerd the podcast that you've started
6: yeah it's this is a labor of love so it's myself and another writer and literary editor Melanie Hill she's based in Australia and I'm in Canada and each week, we get together and we study a different film each week, and we study a different aspect of storytelling, a different story principle, and we show how it applies to the film. Now, you may be wondering, why are we doing films if we're novelists? It's because story has the same structure, no matter how you apply it. It doesn't matter the medium. A story is a story is a story is a story. So when we're looking at these high-level concepts... We can learn from films, and it allows us to repeat the exercise very quickly. So, for a podcast, we can do a film a week. Doing a novel a week would be a bit much. <laughs>
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I try and read all the books before I interview the authors, and I must be honest, it is there's some weeks that I'm trying to read six books a week, which is which is a bit of a struggle. So, and then trying to really break it down into its component parts to discuss what works, what doesn't, plot, structure, characterization, that would be an absolute nightmare. So, and I totally agree with you in terms of studying film and and TV shows and that type of thing in terms of seeing how storytelling works because I'm often you know I'll watch a show and so for example a show that I was binging that I have been binging is The Staircase on HBO Max and oh my word Every week I'm just saying to my husband, oh my God, the storytelling is insane. The way they approach it, the way they do it. And
6: I'm learning a ton as a writer just from from watching the show. Oh yeah. There are so some shows out there right now that are just are jaw dropping. I mean, thank God for Breaking Bad because that's the series that really, you know, made this whole thing explode with this long form storytelling. And showing what can happen when writers are allowed to do their jobs. (laughs) You know, Vince Gilligan, Peter Gould, and then that team moved over to Better Call Saul, which is now uh, in its sixth season and final season. The writing is just, are inspiring, yeah.
0: Okay, so so for our listeners who are looking for another sort of literary podcast, how how is your show structured, Valerie? Can you give our listeners an idea of how often you air it, how long each episode is, and the kind of takeaways that that people can can take from the show? Because what I'm learning more and more is that You know, people don't just want theory in terms of writing. I feel like, and I was the same, I read every book on on writing theory and that was great. And then you know all the theory, but then you sit down in front of the blank screen and you still are no closer to knowing how to practically apply it. And I really feel like that is the key
6: for emerging writers. That's exactly why we started this podcast I did a podcast for three years with StoryGrid called the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable Podcast, which became the Writer's Room Podcast. Those episodes are still available. And when that show finished, I got a lot of email from people saying, we miss the show. We really like that format. Are you ever going to do something like that again? And it's the type of podcast that you need a co-host with. So I eventually roped Melanie into doing this with me because we just love learning out on story. And just like you say... The theory is great, but unless you know what to do with it, it's not much help. And I find as I work with writers, they sort of sort themselves into a couple of different groups. One group says, I don't need theory at all. I don't need to know how, I, I can just write. I just like to write. Great. Then there's another group who want to know everything there ever is to know about theory before they put one word on the page. And then there's another group that think of story theory as the as metaphors and fine line writing. And that's part of it, but it's not the whole thing. In fact, it's not even the priority. And as a novelist, it it pains me to say that, I am still coming to terms with that, but it's true. The first thing that we need to learn is how does a story work? How do I know if what I've written is is right is is going to entertain anybody? Is going to be of interest to anyone? So often, writers will pour their heart and soul into their manuscript, and they'll spend two, three, four, five years working on a manuscript, and it's their best guess. You know, I I think this is right. It kind of feels right, but I'm not sure. Well, if you're going to start a career as a writer, you need to be sure. If you're going to pitch an agent, an agent is a professional who won't earn any money until they sell your manuscript. A publisher is a company who won't earn any money unless someone buys your book. So they're interested in working with writers who are also professionals and who also understand their craft. That's our job to know how to write the story. It's not the agent's job, it's not the publisher's job. The good news is that learning the story theory is a heap of fun. This, I mean, this is a laugh and a half. So often we tangle ourselves up in knots and worry and fret over, oh, is this right? Is that right? I believe that there is no need for that level of anxiety. This is fun. We get to write stories for a living. So, what we want to do on the Story Nerd podcast, because there are, I mean, I've been doing this now for a few years. I've been studying story every day since uh, May 2017. And Melanie, she's a, she's, I think she started in maybe 2018, 2019, but she's just as much of a story nerd as me. We work with writers all of the time. And what I have come to learn is that any writer who wants to improve their craft, there's three things that we have to do. First, we have to understand the concept. Then we have to see how other people have applied that concept in their work, whether it's a TV show or film or novel or stage play. And then we have to apply it to our own work. So what we want to do on Story Nerd is help writers with those first two steps. Show them what the principle of storytelling is, then show them how other people have applied it or what happens if it hasn't been applied correctly so that they have a starting point and then they can take that back to their writer's room and apply it to what they're writing right away. Because we most writers, especially if they're in you know the first book or two, they still have a day job. So their writing time is limited. And I would love for writers to use that writing time as effectively as possible.
0: Yeah, excellent, excellent insights. And something you said earlier really resonated with me. I remember when I was young and idealistic and somebody said to me, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And that really upset me because I was just like, oh, then it's all about contacts and all these other things don't matter. But you get older and you realize a lot of that's true. And I'm seeing so many novels that are selling like hotcakes where the writing is really not that good. And we always think it's about the writing. It should be about the writing. And so we think if we can write beautiful sentences and and all of that, we are going to have a best-selling book. But so many of these stories that sell well are someone who came up with a really good idea. They were able to structure it in a really clever way that's super, super engaging. So they're a really good storyteller, but not so good with the words. And I feel like if as writers we can understand story, understand how story works, and then work at the craft, then we're really coming at it with this with this kind of double whammy. And I know for me, I learn best when I'm shown examples of things. You know, if I get critique on my work and I just get told something isn't working, it's it doesn't help me. I need to know what exactly is not working and give me an example and give me an example of how you think it might work instead and then I'm able to apply this knowledge that I've learned but when it's just you know theoretical it feels super vague so in terms of your show when you break down each film that you watch what specifically are you looking for what specifically are you pointing out to your listeners that they can then
6: apply to their own work Well, in season one, both Melanie and I are looking at genre. Now, this is the great irony of what we do. Our jobs have to do with words. Yet, we don't, within this industry, within the writing craft, we don't have a lexicon that we all agree on. So genre means one thing to me, it means one thing to you, it's going to mean one thing, something different to someone else. None of us is right, none of us is wrong. We just understand genre differently. So when Melanie and I are looking at genre in season one, it's just what kind of film is this? Where would you find this? And we're looking at the marketing genre versus the writing genre. Because they're two different things. And that makes sense when you when you really think about what is happening here. The writing genre is how is the author looking at this? So my job, I want to write a story. Uh, let's take Black Swan, the film Black Swan. It's marketed as a thriller. And it is thrilling. A hundred percent. It is thrilling. It's a, a brilliant film. But the writers didn't write a thriller. They wrote a performance story that was kind of dark and had some of these these psychological thriller elements in it. So when you understand how to look at a story from the writer's perspective, from the marketer's perspective, one, it helps you write the story in the first place, but it also enables you to have a much more informed conversation with your agent and your publisher, the acquisitions editor, because their expertise is not the story. They might need to know, well, can you, can you do, like if you can do this with the story, I can sell it better. So you can take that information back and think, okay, how can I incorporate their feedback while still keeping the integrity of the story? That right there is the skill that will enable you to have a career, in my opinion. Let me give you a real quick example of the type of thing that we do. So season one was all about genre. Season two, we're actually preparing right now, and I'm going to look at the, the hero's gift expressed or the protagonist's gift expressed, and Melanie is going to look at forces of antagonism. So we're taking a principle and looking at just that principle for the whole season, 10 episodes, because repetition is the key. Because it's, you know, if, if we were accountants, then once I showed you what a debit is and what a credit is, you'd know it. And didn't matter what accountant you spoke to, in what part of the world, it would be the same. That's not how it works in writing. And thank God for that. So we'll have a storytelling principle and one screenwriter or filmmaker will apply it in a certain way in one film, in another, like in a sci-fi film for argument's sake, And then in a love story, it can be applied a little bit differently. So we're trying to show how these principles apply in as many different types of stories as we can, because that's how you really learn. So let me give you a real quick example of an exercise that your listeners can take right now into their writing rooms and get going with it. This is a, a basic example. So stories have a nested structure, which means that the whole, if you think of the Russian doll example... You've got a big doll with a little doll inside. They all are the same. They're just different sizes and they tuck one inside the other. That's how a story is structured. That's what it looks like. So once you know how one unit works, you know how they all work. That's the beauty. So on a global structure for the story as a whole, Ask yourself, what does your protagonist want? What or who is stopping her from getting it? What happens if she doesn't get it? And then what does she need to do in order to get that thing that she wants? Very basic questions. If you know the answers to those, it is like a guiding light to keep you on track as you write. Then, when you get to the scene level, ask those same questions again. What does my protagonist want in this scene? What or who is stopping her from getting it in this scene? What happens if she doesn't get it in this scene? Is she getting closer to her big global want or further away from it? And what does she need to do in order to shift the tide her way in this particular scene? And does she actually do it? Just Doing those things will improve your writing exponentially. You will see a quantum leap in your ability to write a story. Let me show you how this applies to Pride and Prejudice, okay, as a story as a whole. The protagonist is Elizabeth Bennet. So what does Elizabeth want? To marry for love. What or who is stopping her from getting it? It's her habit of making snap judgments of other people. What happens if she doesn't get it? She's going to be out on the street because her father's estate is entailed away from the female line. And what does Elizabeth need to do in order to marry for love, which is her want? She needs to learn to see people for who they are, not assume she knows who they might be. So in other words, she needs to mature. Just understanding that and getting really clear yourself will not only help you write your novel; it's going to help you write your query letter. What do you think of that? That's amazing,
0: and you know, we always we're talking on the podcast about how in scenes we need interiority, we need conflict. How conflict can be between two different characters, or can be inner conflict, etc. And so, what you're saying is just taking, you know, that and just making it even more clear. Because what you're saying is that Elizabeth Bennett's biggest sort of enemy is herself in terms of this thing that she wants which means that the inner conflict this conflict within herself is what's stopping her from getting what she wants and yet we often think of story as being okay it's Uh, interpersonal conflict its somebody who's standing in the way of somebody else when in fact we can be our own biggest enemies which means that conflict in a scene does not have to be two people yelling at each other it could be just be this
6: interiority with this character grappling with themselves a hundred percent a hundred percent. And in fact, at every unit of story, let's just focus on the scene for now, because when we think about the story as a whole, we can, that's a little easier to identify who the antagonist or what the antagonist is. But let's look at the scene level. If you've got a two-person scene and they're two best friends, for argument's sake, having coffee, the protagonist and her bestie. Well, because there's only two people in the scene, the bestie by default becomes the antagonist for the scene, still her bestie overall, but they got to disagree about something. They've got to create that conflict. If you don't have a point of conflict in your scene, which is answering that question, who or what is stopping her from getting it? It's always the antagonist, right? There's, There's an obstacle in the way. At the scene level, the bestie becomes the antagonist. So they're going to disagree about something. They might, for example, agree on, maybe your protagonist wants a new job. They might agree, agree that this job is a great opportunity for the protagonist, but what they disagree on is how the protagonist should go about getting it, for example. There's got to be something that they disagree on because that creates the conflict and that's the stuff of story. Without the conflict, what you have is a piece of exposition, which is not very dramatic and it's highly predictable. So when your reader or viewer can predict what's going to happen not only what happens, but how it happens, your story starts to lose momentum. They might stay with you for a little while, give you a chapter or two, but they're going to put it down pretty quickly. Now, in saying that, I firmly believe that none of the storytelling principles are good and none of them are bad. They are what they are. They do some things really well, other things not so well. So I'm sure everyone has heard, show, don't tell. Well, I don't believe that. It's show and tell in my opinion because the tell would be the exposition and that is really effective when you use it as ammunition. When you plop in just a little bit of information at a key time when the reader needs to know it because your reader is on a need to know basis, right? So when you drop a little bit of information into a scene that propels the scene forward, that's when you're using exposition as ammunition. So it's it's a great tool if you know what it is and when you can pop it in. This is what story theory is all about. So what we're talking about on Story Nerd is here are the tools. Here's what they do well, and here's what they don't do so well. Here's some examples of how other people have used them. And then as you all are sitting in your writer's room, you can think, okay, which tool do I need to pull out here to shape my story the way I want to shape it? And you might have to try a couple of different tools and see, to try them on for size and see what happens. Your scene might suddenly come alive and it might sort of do a face plant, but then you know how that principle of storytelling works. So it, when you're starting out, sure, there's a little trial and error, but that's like everything. If you wanted to draw a, a picture, your first picture is not going to look great. If you wanted to learn how to play the piano, you're not going to automatically sit down and play a concerto. You you know, you, you You got to try them a little bit first to see how they work, but there aren't that many principles of storytelling. That is really good news for us. Where it gets tricky is that everyone talks about these principles in a little bit of a different way, because like I said, we don't have a standard lexicon that we can draw from. So one of the key pieces of advice that I tell writers is not to focus on the term that's used to describe a concept, focus on the concept. Point of view is a great example here. Bianca, if you and I sat down and talked about point of view, what I think of as third person omniscient may or may not be what you think of as third person omniscient. You might have a different label on it. Who cares what the label is? The label doesn't matter. So when they pick up, when anyone picks up a book on story theory, whether it's, you know, Story Grid, Robert McKee, Lisa Cron, I think everyone should read Wired for Story because it tells you this is what you're doing when you decide to become a novelist. This is the, the sandbox you're playing in and it's really awesome. <laughs> so enjoy it. What it allows us to do is take the labels and set the labels aside and focus on the concept. And if if Robert McKee is talking about a concept in one way, and you pick up another theory book, and, you know, you can walk around and, and look at that same concept from the other side of the table, and your understanding of it deepens, that's if you strip the label away. I think that's the key, really, to understanding story theory. Excellent, excellent points.
0: And it, you know, for some people, it'll sound counterintuitive, because they're studying story theory, so that You know, that they know it and they understand it. But I 100% agree with you in terms of stripping the label. Because I've heard, you know, misbelief being discussed in so many different ways. So Lisa Cron calls it misbelief. Other people call it another thing. Other people call it something else. And it all really boils down to the same thing in terms of the, the character's arc. It's overcoming this you know, obstacle, this inner obstacle that started at the beginning of the story and then learning and growing as as they carry on. Well, Valerie, it's been wonderful chatting with you. We are unfortunately, at the end of our time, for our listeners, go and find Story Nerd, listen to the podcast, do these deep dives into the different categories and things that Valerie and them are, are tackling. And Valerie, we wish you much luck with your thriller and we hope to have you on the show when that's published. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.
5: Welcome everybody to the Q&A session. Here we go with question one.
0: Hi, Bianca, Carly, and
7: Cece. I have a question about comps. I think I'm confused because I'm not sure if I'm supposed to be looking for comps that are sitting on the bookshelves now, or if I'm looking for comps throughout the history of literature that may be the closest fit to my themes or characters. So if you could let me know if I should be looking for sort of more modern titles that have been published recently.
5: All right. This is a great question on comps. And I know everybody is always so confused about them because we're always talking about comps. So... I personally always think, and this is kind of what I share in social media and what I share in workshops, I personally believe that comp should be within the past five years. And the reason that I feel that way is because you are selling a book into the modern marketplace, right? We're not, even if you use a comp like Hemingway, you're not selling a book into the early 1900s or whatever, right? We're not doing like a a mid century, um, you know, a mid century sell here. We're selling into today's market. And so, in terms of thinking about what comps the purpose of comps are, we always come back to that as well. The purpose of comps for, for publishers, and when you're trying to sell a book, is that you're trying to say, hey, my book is for fans of X. I think my book might also sell approximately, you know, X number of copies, similar to what that other author sold. And that's what that's what editors do. When when us as agents were selling book to editors, they are running their PL, their profit and loss, you know, statement that they do, and they have to put comps in there to estimate maybe how many copies they think that your book can sell. And they're using comps as a basis for that. So all of this to say, is we're trying to find your place in the market. And, and that's a combination of many things. So some people think, oh, I need to comp on character, I need to comp on theme, you know, I need to, I need to figure all this magical formula out. But you also have to think about where we're at in today's market. So that's why I always think think modern, think the past five years. If you absolutely must comp something older, make sure that your other comp is very modern. So if you're gonna have an older comp older than five years, just make sure that you also have a very modern comp to balance it out. So those are my those are my feelings on that.
7: Yeah, I think this is a really great question because it represents something that many authors worry about, especially because oftentimes you're writing a modern twist on a classic. So what I would say is absolutely try to try to look at the last five years. That makes total sense. Don't be afraid, though, of branching out if if that makes sense for your work because when we as agents read the trades i'm telling you at least once a week there's a title a title that just sold that was pitched as and then they'll they'll include a classic like sex in the city or the devil wears prada or you know something that is you know still modern not hemingway but then it's like sex in the city but with why like something really fresh something really modern something that's really easy to understand So that does happen quite often. I do think that it's okay as long as it represents what your work is about. And as long as the other one is also modern, because... Do you know that feeling you get when you finish a book and you're like, this book is so good. I wish there were others like this. That's sort of the purpose of comps. Like, you know, you're telling agents and we're telling editors, hey, those books that sold really well, like this is for fans of that. And, you know, you'll be able to get those great sales because people want more of that. So I think that's that's where I think it helps to think of comps in that way. Okay, let's move on to the second question.
8: I have a question about querying. I'm working on my debut novel, which is in the literary fiction genre involving a dysfunctional family, sexual abuse, and the reverberations of trauma unreckoned with, which is to say a frothy comedic tale. Well, not really. I have a few comps in mind, and I'm wondering if agents would view it as presumptuous of me, an unpublished nothing burger, to liken my work in some way to a novel that was heralded by critics and prize committees as genius, a masterpiece damn near the second coming of Jesus Christ himself. Would there be a sense of, who does this cheeky upstart think she is? What audacity is she possessed of to think that her work resembles in some way this literary masterpiece? Or is it okay to include such a lofty comp if there is some meritorious comparison, say thematically, or they share a voice, and the comps are balanced with less highly extolled works? Oh,
7: okay. I really, really like this question too. I laughed out loud so many times, and I'm wondering, could your next book please be a dark comedy cuz you're really funny? I would say don't worry about promising as long as you can deliver. So if you're using a comp that's, you know, beautifully written and won awards and all that good stuff, that is fine as long as your writing can deliver on the quality that you know using that comp is promising to to the agent to the reader the one thing i will add to that is that you know when we're talking about nonfiction and i know you're not but if but if we were be careful not to use comps written by people that don't fit your profile so like you know if you're using a comp by a nobel prize winner and the person was already a nobel prize winner when they wrote that book and you're not a nobel prize winner that that doesn't quite match so that's something to be mindful of but that's really more in the nonfiction space in the fiction space if your concern is, well, this writing is beautiful, or, people are gonna think I'm presumptuous. No, people are gonna get excited because they love that writing and they want to read more of that writing. Just make sure you can deliver.
5: Yeah, the other thing that I would add is I tend to steer people away from comping to like a voice of a generation, you know? Those really, really kind of key authors. So I agree with Cece on all the points. Like I would I would be avoiding like Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Joan Didion, John Krakauer, like, you know, people where you feel like they are the voice of their generation. So those would be the people I'd be avoiding. But otherwise, just make sure you can deliver.
1: Hi, Bianca, Cece, and Carly. I have a formatting question for you. What's the best way to organize interstitials in your novel manuscript? For mine, I have newspaper articles, transcripts, fan forums, that sort of thing scattered throughout the novel. This is not part of present action or backstory. They are standalone pieces. So should I be labeling those as chapters? Uh, Should I be using a different font like you recommend we do for text messages what's the best way to put this together so the agent knows what I'm trying to do in the manuscript and there is clarity.
5: Thank you so much. All right. So our third question is on formatting. So when we're thinking about formatting extra materials, supplementary materials, such as newspaper articles and that sort of thing, one of the things that I think about is a few things. Number one, these are going to stop readers in their tracks. So, having too many of them will really be pulling people out. I wouldn't call them a new chapter or anything like that. If you are creating these things, definitely have a different font, absolutely. If they are third party, so example, like they were actual newspaper articles or maps or other things that you didn't create, then there's a whole kind of conversation around permissions, which we don't talk about too much in, on the podcast. But if you are trying to bring somebody else's work and put it in your book for commercial purposes, you have to get permission from the person who created that. And that is work for you because you have to then hunt down the person who created these, get permission for them in writing. Also, sometimes there's money involved and that sort of thing where you have to, pay them for this. So again, so if you're creating it yourself, make sure that you don't have too many of these, and they stand out in a different font. If they are made by somebody else, make sure you have permission to use them. And it's very clear in writing that you do have permission. So those are kind of two ways of thinking about it. But I would just really not do too many, you know, really make sure especially if this is fiction, which this person said that it is making sure that the really the storytelling does the work and try not to bring the reader out of the situation too frequently.
7: I know that you know since you're still working on your novel, you're you don't have like you don't have it in book format. But I do think it helps to look at books that have these insert chapters. So you know when you look at The Club by Ellery Lloyd, there are there's a newspaper article that we read throughout the novel. So every couple of chapters or so, we see an excerpt of that newspaper article and. When we first start to read that article, it says Vanity Fair. I don't remember what the title was, but Murder on the Island or something, you know, and you have the log line. It really does look like a newspaper article. So I think formatting really matters just because we read all the time and so our eyes are tired. So I would definitely pick a new font definitely start a new page, as in like insert page break, these things matter. Because I think that it just improves readability. I would also, again, like I said, look at the authors who've done it. I mentioned the club, but there's Leon Moriarty, there's Chandler Baker for transcripts. There's there's so many examples. So go out there and, and learn from the best.
0: And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes.